Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. (laughs) Hello, Mark Kenny with you here again for one of the final episodes for this year. We'll have our Democracy Sausage Politician of the Year Award episode on December 14. It was one of our most popular episodes last year and one of our more controversial ones, I might say, as well. This week, however, we're going to be a little more contemporaneous. We're going to talk about lies, damned lies, and election campaigns, and and a fair bit else besides. Although, to be fair, it's not just in election campaigns that lies are a problem. They seem to have the run of the farm right through the electoral cycle nowadays, which is a danger in itself because it is leading to the kind of normalisation of lying, really. You know, we hear that statement, all politicians lie which is not literally true, that's the first point, and secondly, it's a kind of artless resignation, really, or worse, even an invitation from citizens to political leaders essentially saying, lie to me, it's okay, I don't deserve anything better. But we do, we should, and we must. I've been reading Anne Applebaum's The Twilight of Democracy recently, and in it she makes the excellent point that while autocratic one-party states are invariably built on a big lie, it is the medium-sized lie that is often used to corrode democracies from within – conspiracy theories based on delegitimizing opponents or external threats, crushing the hated elites, elevating the resentful and the mediocre. Just look at Central Europe at the moment. I strongly recommend this book, by the way. That's Anne Applebaum's The Twilight of Democracy. So standards matter and the integrity of public officials and public information is essential for the stability of liberal democratic systems. With me, as usual, in the, in the uh, on this podcast is the political scientist, lecturer, and director of the Centre for the Study of Australian Politics at ANU, Dr. Maria Teflaga. Howdy, Maria. Hello. That's right. We're not in the same pod cave. I was almost going to say that, but of course, uh, in this uh, these disjointed, I would be a lie. Yeah, that's right. We, precisely, we don't want to start off with such a grotesque lie as to suggest that we're all in the same room. We're in fact all in different rooms and and in different cities. Uh, and speaking of different cities, I'm delighted to welcome Judith Brett, who is Emeritus Professor of Politics 
at La Trobe University. She's the author of several influential books, among which is From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, uh, obviously a, a pretty uh, pretty good title from our point of view. Uh, the subtitle is How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. And most recently, uh, she's released Doing Politics, Writing on Public Life. Welcome, Judith. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. Oh, it's really terrific to have you. You've been such a giant in um, in the political science and writing about Australian politics for a long time. So, uh, really glad to have you on the podcast. And as I say, as the author of a book that actually mentions democracy sausage, it's sort of a no brainer, really. Um, it's also welcome back to Bernard Keane, political editor at Crikey and author of a new book. Also, his is uh, all true, and yet it's all lies. Actually, it's called Lies and Falsehoods. Perhaps it could have been called The Truth About Lies. Bernard, welcome back. It's good to be back. Now, let's talk about this overall sort of sense of decline in politics in the West um, around, I suppose, integrity and you know the, the faith that people have in, in institutions, in politics, and what that means. Judith, perhaps I can go to you. When, when do you sort of chart the decline that we all seem to feel at the moment. When when do you chart that decline starting in Australian politics? Was it with with Howard and 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 perhaps the you know his his statements in the late eighties about Asians and and then the kind of the emergence of of Pauline Hanson in the mid nineties, uh, or or did it start before that? Look, I think it actually starts a bit later. I think most recently with Tony Abbott. Actually, yes, there was you know Howard made. A number of uh, you know misleading statements, for example, in the children overboard affair. But I don't think at that point. I mean, Howard was a pretty competent prime minister, and there was a sense that you know the government was governing; it wasn't just flailing about. And so it seemed to me that really, with Tony Abbott and the the lies that he got elected on, and then the big lies about climate change. That that's when it's turned into this this more sort of toxic environment. The beginning of this more toxic environment, and then obviously it's Trump in the United States, where many of the alt right are taking you know using as a playbook the the sort of extremism that Trump encouraged in the United States. So I th- I think you know there's always been an underlying sort of cynicism about about politicians and their motives, but also a sense that you know if they're they're doing their job, but I, I think so. I see it as a bit more recent. Bernard, what's your sense around this? Because uh, I mean, obviously, um, when we think about Hanson and the, you know, that that sort of signals, at least in an official parliamentary sense, that first time when she wins the seat of Oxley in '96, um, and and so we have the kind of the parliamentary legitimisation of over division within Australian society being being kind of recognised there, albeit just for one term, but then a little later on she comes back and in, in the form of a senator, which which is a more logical place for her to be and certainly a more successful place for her to be uh, ever since. Um, but, of course, there have been – so we've had that process, but we've also had – politics itself, you know, the, the parties themselves kind of trashing their own traditions and institutions, particularly when we think about the move on Kevin Rudd in uh, in 2010, uh, which I think really sapped a lot of moral morale, if I can put it like that, from, from within Labor and, and right across politics. I think Hanson's an important figure in, in her 90s form in pointing toward what was coming. And Hanson always, at least for me, represented 
the successful exploitation of a really serious resentment driven by um, economic changes. Um, she always appealed to and continues to appeal to people who perceive themselves as losers from basically neoliberal economics, uh, you know, working class and, and to lesser extent middle class men primarily, but people who perceive that their status, both their economic status and their social status, was really under threat, under threat from you know, a much more individualistic set of economic policies and under threat from you know, changes, in, changes in Australia and the Western world, which sort of lowered the, 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 the level of white heterosexual men and uh, tried to give, provide more equality for women, for, for people of colour, for LGBTI people, for you know, any, any, any number of people who had, under the previous social circumstances, um, had no voice. So the way that she was able to tap into that, I think, really pointed toward the, what we ha- what we now have, which is that that situation uh, on steroids, um, and in fact the politics of grievance, the politics of of discontent, now you know being not just a sideshow as Paul and Hanson was back in ninety six to ninety nine, and then to an extent in Queensland after that, but but a, a much more dominant form. But I think Judith's quite right to point to Tony Abbott as a really key figure, not really because politics, the tone of politics changed particularly around climate issues, when Tony Abbott became opposition leader and would you know, obviously prepare to say anything in order to, in order to uh, pull down Labor. But the issue of competence is, is important there as well. You, you rightly made the point early on about the fact that John Howard actually could govern competently. So even if people didn't like the, the you know, weapons of mass destruction lie or the you know, children overboard or even never again on the GST, Nonetheless, you know, John Howard was a competent governor. What we've seen now, and this is a point that other commentators have made offshore, is that when you start getting politicians like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, who really genuinely just seem to have a problem with reality, that really does undermine their capacity to govern effectively. If you don't really believe in objective reality, you think you simply believe whatever you're saying at the moment, whatever is convenient, then that does seriously degrade your capacity to respond to, for example, a major crisis like a pandemic. And that was certainly the, the story with Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. And I think it's, uh, I think it's to a degree, become a problem with uh, Scott Morrison here as well. So that link between competence and, and deception. And we, we saw that obviously with Tony Abbott as well, who was a, you know, the world's greatest opposition leader and one of Australia's worst prime ministers. Uh, you know, that, that we, we do seem to have moved into, into an era when it's no longer just about lies, it's about the relationship between your view of reality and your capacity to actually govern effectively. I think that's really interesting what you sort of say there, uh, both, both of you. And, and the, the common thread for me in what you're saying is it's actually about cynicism. And I guess when I think about cynicism in the Australian context, I think of Graham Richardson and whatever it takes. Um, and and th- that sort of flick to that kind of politics because, you know, I, I entirely agree with uh, both what you're kind of saying about the role of, of Tony Abbott in particular and, and we, we know because uh, the actors involved, Peter Credlin namely, have, have told us just how cynical – uh, they were about, you know, exploiting Julia Gillard's, uh, you know, I, I guess, attempt to to be real with the with the Australian public about whether or not it was a carbon price or or a carbon tax, and they exploited that. Um, yeah, what was her line there? She said something along the lines of, um, you know, Tony Abbott repeated and repeated and repeated that it was a carbon tax, and it took six months or so, or maybe even longer, to to penetrate to, into the electorate. But when it did, Gillard was basically finished. <laughs> 
Yeah, and effectively what she said was, look, it wasn't a tax. It was many other things. It wasn't a tax, but we made it a tax, and that was brutal retail politics. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And and I think I think what that goes to is, and, and sort of the point I'm making about this moment where the Labor Party, and I'm not saying this is a product of the Labor Party, you, you see it happening around the same time all over the world, right? It's, it's the professionalisation of politics. It's removing the norms um, and the sort of sense of civic duty and the, the need to be seen to be acting as a public servant and to kind of go back into Judith's sort of back catalogue of books, um, you know, like the fact that the people who governed us in the 60s and 70s and 80s were from the generation of joiners, like people who whose political acculturation, socialization happened during World War II and who wanted to kind of continue to serve the community. And that sort of changed over time. And what and, and Tony Abbott, I think, is actually kind of like the high point or an end point of, of that sort of cynicism. And I think he's so interesting because he is a politician who if he chose to, could kind of talk about politics as a moral calling, as as, a, as an act of service, as something bigger than political ambitions, right? But could also simultaneously, you know, be utterly devastatingly cynical, and that's why people like to call him the the best opposition leader um, we we've ever had. And and I and that's I think that's actually kind of says something about where we're at. Like it, this is no longer about public service. It's no longer about serving the public. It's no longer about doing good. It's about winning a game. And it's just a game. And we talk about it and we frame it in this construct all the time. I mean, Albo says, look at the play or, um, you know, so many stories in the media are about telegraphing what the tactics are, like like voters are idiots. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. Um, when we think about the, the, that sort of advent of Tony Abbott, as, as I think you've all remarked, in terms of you, you don't think about Abbott just as Prime Minister from 2013. The important thing to think about with Abbott is to think about his arrival in at the end of 2009, you know, when he takes Turnbull out as as opposition leader, and he does so quite aggressively and specifically over climate, emerging albeit as a sort of an unlikely victor of that process. Uh, many thought it might be Joe Hockey who would get the get the nod at that point, but uh, interesting that he then really goes about transforming the the, the role of opposition leader, much more hard hitting. But he's of course got quite quickly he's got the uh, the 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 way that Julia, Julia Gillard becomes prime minister he's got that whole kind of legitimacy argument that he's able to exploit and hammer away at for for that period of time and you can even see the attack on the carbon tax uh, carbon price which he calls the carbon tax as uh, you know part of you know very much energized by this whole general argument that Julia Gillard is not legitimate. And, of course, there are people within the Labor Party who hold that view also, Kevin Rudd being not least among them. But I think also it's the way in which he mobilised misogyny that he needs to be held to account for because, the yes, I mean, the circumstances of the way Julia Gillard came to power was pretty disastrous. But I think if it had have been a man who'd done that, uh, he wouldn't have been able to mobilise the same animus against her. The repeated imagery of the stab in the dark, the way she was, you know, compared to Lady Macbeth. It's a Lady Macbeth is a figure of illegitimate female ambition, 
And so I think there was a, and Anne Summers has talked about this, there was a the terrible mobilisation of, of really horrible sexist misogyny against her. And Tony Abbott was was really instrumental in that. So I don't think it's just the issue of legitimacy. I think we have to bring gender into the picture there. I think that's entirely correct, Judith. And and I think the, the thing I would add is that, you know, if, if Julia Gillard was Julian Gillard, a man, Kevin Rudd would be a sore loser. Exactly. That's how we would remember him as someone who 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 lost the job and then couldn't take it. In 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 a similar way to we see sort of Tony Abbott as as a destructive force, you know, not not necessarily someone who is writing a, a great wrong. And we don't have a lot to. Uh, I mean, I, I I think that's right. I, my instinct is that that critique is absolutely on the money, and that it is very much a gendered attack, and that has much more spite, and it has much more bite because of that gendered dimension. It's misogynist. It's not. It's 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 really. It was there was crude, terribly crude racist stereotypes. I mean, the fact that. Abbott was prepared to stand up in front of a sign, you know, saying Julia Gillard mm. was Bob Brown's, Bob Brown's bitch. Was it, it's shocking? Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I completely agree, and I'm certainly not trying to downplay that. I, in fact, I was going to go on to make the point that the only other sort of modern comparison we have had at that point of a prime minister, a sitting prime minister, being replaced uh, was was Paul Keating replacing Bob Hawke, and. Keating had, didn't have that legitimacy problem, which, you know, you might argue there are certain other, fa- you know, local factors associated with that. I mean, the fact that Hawke was in his, what was it, his fourth term, quite different from Rudd not even making it to, to his first election. But uh, nonetheless, Keating didn't have those sort of legitimacy questions around him and, of course, went on to win the 93 election. So uh, quite clearly, uh, you know, a, a sort of a different treatment and that, depiction of Gillard, as, as you say, Judith, of sort of Lady Macbeth and of, of having been illegitimate in every respect and uh, the most fundamental one being that, you know, she was a woman, uh, was uh, it was unavoidable. I, I think the final thing about Tony Abbott as, a, as an opposition leader that I think was really important and something that we haven't discussed enough as a society, and that is the way that Tony Abbott really attacked the institutions of parliament, right? And he very much stretched and I think broke core norms around what um, a loyal institutionalised opposition should and shouldn't do. The way that he not only attacked the legitimacy of Julia Gillard as a prime minister, but also of the government she led because it was a minority government was outrageous, particularly for a party that loves to remind everyone of the sanctity and sacredness of our British traditions. Well, this is literally meat and potatoes of, of our British traditions, which is the primacy of parliament. Parliament is is war by other means, right? It's it's there to civilise politics. And the way that Tony Abbott attacked Parliament and the, the fact that Parliament was actually supreme over this government for once because it was a minority government was was outrageous and shocking. And, and, and you know, I mean, he pulled so many stunts like refusing to accept votes or, uh, you know, the calling those suspensions of standing orders uh, every day, uh, you know, constantly attacking the legitimacy of a minority government in in the first place. I don't think we've actually ever really recovered from this. The fact that they basically reversed and undid all of the good works that the independents asked for in improving the practice of parliament with the exception of 30 seconds or 90 second statements from, from backbenchers. Notice that everything we've said about Tony Abbott so far, though, is all about 
the damage he was directing and the tactics he used against his opponents. Tony Abbott would get up in the morning and tell 10 lies by lunchtime. He, you know, Wyala would be wiped out and you know, the, uh, the mining tax was going to destroy investment in Australian mining uh, and so on. But they're always aimed at destroying his opponents. What I think we're now into a very different world of is a, a prime minister who, in Scott Morrison, does tell lies about his opponents, but far more often tells lies about himself. He says that something he said a while back, uh, whether three years ago or three weeks ago, he never said. Uh, that something he did never happened. That a policy that he announced, well, he never announced that policy. It's a much more fundamental kind. Of, look, you know, Tony Abbott was a, was falls into the category of, of you know someone who is a profligate liar, but a liar in the service of the agenda of destroying and delegitimizing his opponents. Scott Morrison is a sort of a liar without qualification. You don't need to kind of note that he was he's engaged in trying to destroy his opponents because he's much more engaged in denying reality and denying things that happened rather than making outrageous claims about the, his opponent or his opponent's policies. And I think one is consequent upon the other. I don't think you just lurch straight into a you know a denial of reality from senior political figures as a natural state of, of politics. You've got to get there by degrees. And Tony Abbott was one of those degrees. But I think we've now gone further. And I think the what's happened in the United States under Trump and to a lesser degree under Johnson in the UK, is uh, a signal of where that road potentially leads if we keep going on it. Yeah. Bernard, uh, look, I'm going to pick that up in a moment. We'll just take a quick break there and we'll come back to this because I think this is a really interesting aspect, the difference between the two and the situation we now face. Back in a moment. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, Bernard King, you were talking just before the break about the different character of Scott Morrison's relationship with the truth. We had an extraordinary moment, even yesterday, amazingly, uh, very propitious uh, of Scott Morrison to provide us with a recent example to talk about that really demonstrates your point. But amazingly, Morrison picked up or was allowed, you know, somehow was goaded into picking up a controversy that he'd, he would have hoped was long behind him, that being his 
Hawaii holiday back during the Black Summer bushfires when he'd snuck away and had his office tell reporters that he wasn't away in Hawaii and then when he came back, you know, sort of sort of shimmy around saying this and that, uh, eventually uttering those famous words, I don't hold a hose, mate. And he was asked yesterday in the parliament by a backbencher why his office had told reporters that uh, he wasn't on holiday in Hawaii when he was. And he got up and instead of putting that, uh, you know, playing it with a straight bat, um, he augmented, he just immediately created a whole new lie around it. And then we had the awkward situation where he was through a series of kind of December had to uh, finally arrive back at admitting that what he'd said in his first answer, which was that he'd told Anthony Albanese by text that he was going to Hawaii, it turned out that he had not done so. And what was really fascinating about it also is that Albanese had obviously had this text from the Prime Minister for a long time, that is for the nearly two years since it happened, and had never revealed it. And because Morrison had revealed this text, Albanese then stood up and said, well, actually, Yes, you did text me, and no, you did not tell me you were going to Hawaii. And Morrison eventually had to admit that it was it was an extraordinary example of a completely. It demonstrates your point perfectly, really, which is that it was a completely pointless lie, and it was associated purely with him. And it never. One of the things that never got answered in the whole tawdry event yesterday was the primary question: Why did his office? <laughs> why did his office lie in the first place? They, he obviously has his office lying on his behalf as well. What I took from that was that what we saw was not just so much the lying but his characteristic attempt to blame shift. He somehow wanted to make Albanese the person who hadn't revealed the truth rather than himself. You know, it's this classic blame shifting that he does all the time where he doesn't take responsibility. Yes, that's a very good point. And and the other thing about it which was also fascinating is that it comes only weeks after the Macron event, you know, with, with the French president, which was also about a text message. And that was one of the points that Albanese made when he stood up. You know, he said, I haven't revealed this because I don't believe that you should be making public private communications between private phones. But seeing as you have, this is what you told me. And, you know, it was like a reminder of the Hawaii thing, but it was also a reminder of the of the French debacle only a few weeks ago. Extraordinary poor judgment. It also demonstrates, I think, a real there's, there's a there's a there's a side issue here, which is Morrison's lack of judgment. Now, you would have thought that any mention of Hawaii would have raised his political antennae, and, and he would have made sure that he. I mean, and the, the, the prelude to this was a large number of questions about his credibility. Obviously, Labor were just pushing hard to pressure him on exactly this issue. And of course, he ends up serving up a perfect example of it. Um, so you would have thought he would have been wise to the, the the risks around this, and yet he charges ahead anyway, making a statement that was clearly false. Same question could be asked about why on earth he returned to the electric vehicle issue a couple of weeks ago. He comes back from Glasgow. He's hoping that he's settled the whole issue of climate policy with this, this sort of meaningless net zero by 2050 commitment without a plan to do it. And yet he comes out and promptly declares he's got electric vehicle policy and it's and it's it's fantastic. And of course, of course, journalists are literally the first question journalists are going to ask is, well, hang on, you campaigned against electric vehicles in 2019. And of course, he, his response to that is to, is to say, well, that's, no, that's a labor lie. I never did that. Um, why on earth he, he decided or his, you know, his advisors decided that electric vehicles was going to be the renewables or climate issue that he was going to run up the flagpole, when he could have done any a number, he could have done solar panels, he could have done you know anything. But he chose to do electric vehicles, which everyone, even the politically disengaged, 
will remember from the 2019 election campaign as him bagging the hell out of. It's um, not merely is there a constant issue of, of, of deception, but there is he goes about it very reason. He's a bad liar because he lies about things that are easily checked, and he lies about things that simply remind people of other lies. It's a, it's I, a, I think it's, it's a true gaffe. I think he actually revealed himself. You know, and and it goes to that that point. He he is someone who is deeply deeply uncomfortable with the idea of of taking responsibility for something and or and being um, potentially you know at at fault. And it's, politics is an interesting job to select because um, you know I think you know John Howard was a master of this of of selectively taking responsibility for something and then being able to to move on, right? I think he used to call it bearing his throat to, to the electorate. Peter Beattie was, was another one who used to do it through like effusive apologies. Um, what I find really fascinating about the electric vehicles thing is that he, he sort of, and, and, and actually, and the, the stuff he said about the protests in Melbourne is that he's, he's trying to do this talking out of two sides of his, of his mouth, um, um, you know, which is something that Bill Shorten tried to do and, and failed. And I, I find it really fascinating to think that at a time when he is under so much um, scrutiny that, that he will necessarily kind of get away with it, particularly on subjects that are, I think, actually quite important to the blue ribbon seats um, in the wealthy parts of Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth. And I think those voters will be paying attention to, to these inconsistencies um, and you know, I don't know if it will necessarily make up for the voters that they might pick up on the right fringe uh, in other parts of, of the country. I think this is a very risky strategy. But I think the problem is that he doesn't actually have any policies that he wants to prosecute. So um, he he's just simply there trying to shift the attention back onto Labor to make it out as if somehow Labor's the government and they're just, you know, they're not. And so it's it, it's this strange thing where the, the government is running a line that people should let the government get out of the way. You know, people want governments, I think, well, many people want governments who will actually do things. And Morrison doesn't really have any very substantial policies at the moment. Uh, even the legislation that's up before the parliament are, are on things that are sort of symbolic more than are going to make a real difference to people's material lives or to the strength of the Australian economy. Yes, I mean, a good example of that is the, the Religious Freedom Bill, which has suddenly become this great priority and some mandate issue, which reminds me really that it's it's really the defence of people of faith to discriminate against other people. It's not about religious freedom. It's about the freedom to discriminate according to religious belief. Uh, and it reminds me of George Brandis's famous uh, comment in the Senate uh, at one point uh, before he left where he said everyone has a right to be a bigot. But it was an election promise. You know, he promised that bill to people who voted for him. So I guess he's got well, to. So was right, opposing yeah, electric vehicles, though. So was opposing yes, electric vehicles, and now he's for Well, he's taking vehicles. that to the next election, uh, Mark. So, yeah. Well, I guess you could argue that, yeah. but, I mean, it's, a, it's supposedly government policy right now. We're not in the election. This is government policy right now that he has announced. So, and oh, we're not in the zero. election. Said, oh, he, I he said, no, we're not in the election. And let's remember this. He That's said true. that he couldn't go to net zero by 2050, hollow though that is without a plan to get there. He said one of the reasons he couldn't do it, apart from the fact that he fundamentally didn't believe in it, targets aren't good and it wasn't necessary and coal is good and don't be afraid and all those other things, 
things. But one of the key reasons, he said, is that we took a promise to the voters at the last election that we were not for that and now we can't just suddenly be for it because that would be an election breach. Well, they now officially are for net zero by 2050, notwithstanding a whole lot of that. Look, one of the questions I want to get to here around this whole lying thing, because I guess it goes to the guts of the issue really, is how much does this actually register out there in voter land? Maria, just you made a very good point about how particularly some of these environmental questions might be seen in some of the leafier liberal inner city electorates and I think that's a very good point and we've seen some you know there's there there's plenty of evidence that uh, these voters are quite switched on to uh, climate change questions and the like but voters unlike people like us who are watching the process very closely ordinary voters are going about their lives they don't keep in their heads lists of the various infractions lists of the various contradictions uh, backflips u-turns or whatever Uh, And those things don't necessarily, therefore, have the sort of power that uh, political commentators and people on Twitter and people who are intensely engaged in the process, invested in the process, they don't have the kind of purchase out there in the electorate that is imagined they might. So is it possible that Morrison, perhaps to you first on this, Judith, uh, that Morrison is capable of uh, effectively compartmentalising the question about his personal integrity on one hand versus the question about trust me, trust me and my my team to run the the country, run the, uh, the the budget, the economy, and so forth in a responsible way. Almost trust me to do not very much because Labor is going to be doing quite a lot, and we we're going to you know we'll give you more of the same. Um, he's obviously going to try that, but I think it's going to be difficult. In the last at the last election, two thousand and nineteen, he wasn't particularly well known. And um, as Sean Kelly uh, in, in the game, which I'd really recommend to your listeners to read, Agreed. Yeah. he um, he looks at the way Morrison invented ScoMo. You know, the daggy dad who loves the sharks and makes uh, Sri Lankan curry for the family on a on a Saturday night. You know, there were a few sort of markers, and they got repeated over and over and over and over. Now he can't do that anymore. And so there's a bit of a vacuum there because there aren't any particular policy achievements he's got. I mean, there's getting us through COVID, but the, the state premiers are as responsible for that as, as he is. And so I think into that policy vacuum, it's very dangerous for him, this notion that he's a liar might slip. I mean, I was talking to my sister last night from Adelaide. She is not, you know, she doesn't follow politics particularly. And certainly she knew all about the lying um, that's how she's seeing him. There's evidence coming through, I think, with some of the focus group stuff that that's starting to stick. And I think that what happened yesterday was disastrous for him. The Macron might have faded away, but it's just reinforced that coming so soon after. And I also think that under pressure, we'll see more of it. He seems to me he's floundering and his his instincts are to to hit back and to say anything but he's not actually sort of in control of things, really. Um, that's that's my sense. Bernard? I'm a little bit less optimistic, I suppose. I, I think the great majority electorate is, as we know, is pretty disengaged. They probably don't know who Emmanuel Macron even is, uh, let alone give weight to what he says. And I think there is this sort of widespread perception that, yes, all uh, you know, all politicians lie, so what? If one politician is accusing another of a lie, and we do have a we have a we have on on the historical record the example of, of 
a prime minister successfully going to an election despite issues around his credibility and succeeding, that being that being John Howard in 2004. Now, obviously, circumstances are quite different, uh, not least of which Anthony Albanese is no, no Mark Latham. I think where the risk is for Morrison is, A, that just by dint of sheer repetition, I mean, repetition is everything in political messaging, just by, sh- uh, by dint of sheer repetition, the, the lie concept might indeed take hold in relation to Morrison standing him out for voters as a particularly prone uh, to deception. And then if that starts to affect people, the way voters see him and hear him in relation to the issues that really motivate how they vote, which is the economy and jobs and, and health. I think if the issue of integrity and believability starts to affect the willingness of people to believe what Scott Morrison says about the, the economy or the health system, then then he's in. You know, he becomes he becomes damaged goods, and it, you know, I think it becomes very difficult for him. The one thing I would say about the Macron issue is, despite that foreign policy traditionally doesn't, no one's interested in foreign policy outside the you know the the engaged elite, is that uh, apart from the pithiness of it and. You know, it's pretty astonishing that uh, uh, francophone with English as a second or third language could, you know, so pithily encapsulate uh, a line so damaging. But what it did was it served to confirm a pre-existing idea um, about Scott Morrison's tendency to mendacity. And you know, there's a there's a core idea in marketing that if you tell people something they already are predisposed to agree with then they're much more receptive than if you tell them something that abuts against their beliefs. And the fact that Macron's one-liner already kind of confirmed what was already floating around in the political ether gave it some extra oomph that it would not otherwise have had if some other if some other prime minister was involved. It would have been Malcolm Turnbull, for example, um, then the line wouldn't have had anywhere near as much resonance. But with Scott Morrison, because... You know, people have been calling him a liar for a while. It uh, it caught a bit of political wind that otherwise might not have happened. Yeah, yeah, it's a heuristic, right? I mean, I think. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't like the way that we often have constructed in the Australian uh, political discourse this sort of like idea of like voters as punters, right, who are disengaged. Like, yeah, plenty of voters are uh, disengaged because they are busy. They do not have the bandwidth. They are not interested, but. I don't like the way it's often constructed as, you know, they are not interested in good government or having good government services. Like I think I think this is sort of we dumb this down at our peril and that is actually one of the reasons that allows us to or allows politicians to kind of get away with not acting as good civic actors, not acting in good faith. And I think what is I've got alarming- two words to say to you about that, Maria, and I, it's climate change. I think climate change is actually a really interesting issue and I actually kind of think it demonstrates the point. Like climate change is an issue that can be framed many different ways and it just sort of depends on where you're at in the political cycle. And whenever climate change raises itself in saliency, we actually do see changes in government. I saw that in 2007. It was constructed around the drought and it was constructed around the fact that it was time for change. We saw it reframed as an economic issue that was going to destroy our jobs in 2013 and we saw the government change. So I 
I mean, people do care about climate change. It's just that it depends on how that issue is is framed because we, we know that in general people vote on the economy and they might care about climate change. They care about healthcare too, right? Like uh, they always say they care about healthcare and education, but they vote for they vote for the government. They now, vote for when the people coalition. say they vote for the government, because I just want to make a point, I did added up the numbers of votes. Labor, actually more Australians voted Labor in the last election than voted for the coalition. It's just they didn't, their, their votes the are, places, not, yeah. are, are not spread. So that this idea that somehow Australians, you know, think X or Y is, is actually not right. You know, yes. a lot of it's got to do with the sort of the, the way the electorate is distributed, but actually more people voted for Labor plus the Greens than voted for the coalition. Yeah, that, that, that's a really good point. And I guess when I, uh, to, just to be clear, like when I say people vote on the economy, like that is not just an Australian phenomena, right? Like, uh, you Some know, people vote on the economy. That's, like the Australian Electoral Commission found that 24% of people at 2019 put the economy as the issue that most affected their vote. 24% of people put climate plus the environment if you added climate change plus the environment together you get exactly the same number so you know it's not true that 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 the economy trumps everything but economic insecurity can trump a lot of things and i mean you and i have rarely disagreed on this podcast i might say maria but I, but i don't know that i would agree that you could say people care about climate change and then cite uh, the 2013 election or the 2016 election even on that no, I, I, I think it was it was the reverse effect, right? It was, Quite, the, it was them know. not caring about it uh, in preference for caring about hip pocket issues. They, I, they well, respond no, I, when they were given the opportunity. They respond to the to the threat of higher electricity prices at the ballot box before they responded to the overarching. Uh, challenge, the longitudinal challenge, if I can put it like that, of climate change. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's true. It's true. People vote for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, when I say people vote on the economy, what I'm saying is is that when you look all across the world, across multiple le- elections over time and space, the economy is the one that comes out as the number one issue. If, if the economy travelled well, people tend to reward the government. That doesn't mean that other issues don't have um, importance and climate change is a really important and significant one because it is actually transformative because it does intersect with climate, as with the environment but with also how the economy works and also with how, how our society is organised and also with the role of government. And so that's why it is uh, like a lashing tail, right, and, and, it can, and it can throw things up in, in different kind of uh, ways. The thing that really worries me about all the misinformation or all the, the uh, half-truths and outright lies is that I'm increasingly hearing from people who are not so interested in politics them saying things like, oh, well, all politicians lie. Mm. That's really dangerous. That's corrosive, isn't it? It is because because the thing that actually kind of keeps democracies floating along, right, and healthy is the strength and vigour of those norms around civic engagement and public service, being seen to be a public service, acting with integrity, right, not just claiming that or claiming that you're within the rules. That's how, uh, you know, uh, semi-autocracies behave or, or, or countries that are well yep. down the list on, on the corruption index behave. 
Yeah, absolutely. That that's is where we're the, that is, No, I agree. That's a slippery slope, and that is uh, that is potentially where we're heading if we keep going this way. We're uh, we're really close to being out of time. I think what's um, going to be fascinating in the in the um, election that we're about to face will be the extent to which the overall situation in the world also affects voter interpretation of the government's performance. Uh, we're about to go into a summer. The the coronavirus situation in Australia is, has been steadily improving for some time. No, you know, thanks to hugely uh, successful vaccination rates uh, primarily and to a lot of actions by state governments. If you compare that to what's going to be happening in Europe and North America and so forth, particularly as they go into their winters and we're seeing a lot of civic unrest and fourth waves and the like, uh, it may well be that that the government is able to sell an argument that uh, it has got Australia through the the coronavirus uh, strongly as I say, it's largely down to the states and down to individuals and down to scientists coming up with vaccines and 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 a lot of uh, a lot of coordination there, rather than um, the resistance that's often come from Canberra. But nonetheless, uh, it's uh, it's going to, I think, be a factor. Government's going to be talking about economic recovery and recovery, a post-pandemic uh, Australia at a time when the rest of the world's perhaps uh, looking uh, like it's going in the other direction, and that will probably reflect well on the government, whether it deserves it or not. Look, with that uh, with that final spiel, it's time to wrap up. Judith, thanks so much for coming on uh, on Democracy Sausage and I recommend your book, Doing Politics, Writing on Public Life uh, and Bernard Keane, of course, your new book as well, Lies and Falsehoods. That's uh, that's just out in the last few days. So uh, two, two books that Democracy Sausage readers will be uh, greatly, uh, will get a great deal out of. So thanks for coming on the uh, on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Maria, thanks as always, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week uh, and um, and continuing, no doubt, some of these themes. Oh, no doubt. Bye, everyone. That's Democracy Sausage for now. Look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.